This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. Yo, yo. Welcome back to Brojo Online with your host, me, Dan Monroe. And today we're going to be talking about a fun but terrifying topic, and that is the concept of letting people hate you. Not just dislike, but hate. What we're really talking about today is people-pleasing. The various forms of validation-seeking and approval-seeking or disapproval-avoidance that nearly everybody on the planet goes through, to some extent. Everything from being polite through to actively putting on a fake persona that you think will make people like you, and everything in between. Today we're going to have a look at why you do this, how it affects you, and importantly, how it actually breaks your ability to connect with people, and how you've been led to believe that it's the right thing to do, even though it's a particularly harmful way to engage in life. I'm going to talk a bit about my experience with having fear of disapproval and confrontation and all that kind of stuff, and we're going to have a look at the concept of polarizing with honesty. We're going to have a look at how you can let people hate you and eventually come around to a point where you enjoy this process because it helps you find the people who will love you. So we're going to have a look at that. It's one of my favorite topics and it's one of the most, uh, how can I say it? It's one of the, the concepts in my life that has changed the most since I was young. When I was younger, my whole reason for living was to make people like me. And I did anything I could to avoid disapproval, in all senses of the word. And it was very difficult because I wanted to avoid disapproval from everyone, which means I had to adjust to each new person or each new group that I was involved with. I started from a very early age. I remember being quite terrified of uh, my parents' anger and disapproval from teachers. I remember that. And... When I was when I was younger, we used to we moved around a little bit. I was I went to three different primary schools before we settled down, uh, before the age of eight, and so I struggled to make friends because I didn't really have any time to like build up a connection with kids, and I was naturally a kind of a shy kid. And what I came to realize, you know, I guess what I came to develop was was this fear of being alone, you know, while other kids were kind of forming groups and stuff. I always felt like I was on the outside. I was the kid who was at risk of being ditched, run away from, or uh, not picked for the team, all that kind of classic stuff. And, you know, so by the time I got to about the age of seven or eight, I had already decided that I need to quickly ingratiate myself with any group in order to avoid this thing. Now, I didn't have these conscious thoughts. It was just a drive to kind of make people laugh, be good at sports, be good at tests, kind of avoid getting in trouble as much as possible. There's just this constant pressure to please others and seek their approval. Now, of course, I was a, I was a child. I was completely ignorant of any kind of base psychology underneath all of this. What I now realize, of course, was that I was deeply afraid of disapproval and in particular confrontation that comes from disapproval. I was quite happy to be alone, essentially. If I was all by myself, I'd usually you know, have my nose in a book and be fairly content or just play cricket by myself or something like that. 
It wasn't being alone that bothered me so much, it was the idea of being around someone who actively disapproved of me, and the kind of risks that I foresaw with that. Now, I, a lot of people I work with share this, and they share it for different reasons. I've had guys who, you know, they're beaten severely by their parents, so their fear is of violence. I've had people who have always been on the outgroup, so their fear of his abandonment and mockery and bullying, and so on and so forth. There's different reasons why we have pain associated with the, the concept of disapproval. But in the end, it all comes down to the same thing. We, we look to seek approval and avoid disapproval because we think of it as a painful experience. Where does this come from? I'm going to have to talk in very general terms here. Uh, because it's different for each person. And if you track back through your history, you'll find key memories with a huge emotional attachment to them for you that may uh, be symbolic of why you develop this fear. But I've seen a lot of patterns in the people that I work with. You know, and these are the patterns I want to share. Now, one that we all share, especially in Western culture, is societal pressure. From a very early age... We're kind of pressured to be as conforming as possible to whatever the norm is. And this is where it already starts to get confusing, because nobody seems to know what normal is, and yet they're constantly pressuring you to be it. You see movies where it's all about being popular and cool. You're told to be nice, to be good. All these kind of terms, popular, cool, nice, good, with no definition to them. We're told to be this thing, but nobody clearly describes what this thing is. Or should I say people do, but they each have their own subjective view of it, so we get this mess of what it means to be good, what it means to be nice. And we're told, every time we're told a definition of what these words mean, it comes with the frame, the underlying assumption that we should be these things. And not be whatever the alternative is. What we're never told is that the alternative is being yourself. So we get a very confusing message when we're, when we're children. We're constantly told to just be yourself. You see it as the moral of a ton of you know, stories and, and folklore and, and movies. Kids, you know, just be yourself. Just be whoever you are. And yet in those same stories and in those same movies, we had a constant message, but don't be who you are if it's something that upsets other people. So we get a very mixed message as we're growing up, a very confusing one. Be yourself as long as it doesn't upset other people. And if it does, here's a list of rules you need to follow, which is essentially not being yourself. So you're, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's nothing you can do that meets any of the criteria. Unless, by some sort of fluke, you're naturally popular, naturally cool. You know, those people who seem to make it to the top levels. Now, what's really interesting I've found, I've been tracking uh, a lot of the popular kids from high school. I just wanted to see kind of what happened with them. And what was interesting is when they hit adulthood, they didn't get to carry any of that popularity forward with them. What's really interesting is no matter how cool they were in high school, the real-life adult world didn't give a shit. And they, they, would, they had to join the ranks of the the lower echelons like the rest of us, you know, and I found that really interesting. It's just a side note. But societal pressure, so we're constantly being told from every angle to be these things, these often contradictory things, and yet nobody's actually really sure of what these things are. 
Underneath all of that, and probably where a lot of this stems from, is the evolutionary drives we have. For those of you familiar with evolutionary psychology, we're relatively new, us human beings. I think recognizably as human beings, we've been around for like 70,000 years, something like that. And that, in terms of evolution, that is the blink of an eye. That is no time at all. We essentially have the same unevolved brains as we did back then. Now, our brains were pretty well suited to the environment back then. They had to be for us to survive. And the way they were suited was to recognize that we survive best as a tribal animal. We don't have fur to keep us warm. We don't have horns and talons to fight with. We're not particularly big and strong compared to the predatory animals out there. But how we survive is with our intellect in a group situation. We survive with politics and community. And you can see this in our, in our close... Um, DNA relatives. You can see this particularly with baboons. They have quite a complex community society with politics and leaders and followers and so on. And and they're untouchable because of this. They they work together as a group. Now we used to need that. It used to be that if the if the tribe turned on you in the past, you're done for. In fact, maybe your whole family was done for. If the tribe decided to ostracize you and kick you out, it would only be a matter of time before a lion picked you off or another tribe destroyed you. And so it quickly became clear that if you want to stick with the tribe, you've got to make sure they don't want to kick you out. Which sometimes means conformity. And this would grow over time. So what would happen if someone had an extremely different point of view in those days is that they would either be kicked out of the tribe or they would form a new one. They were either leaders or they would die. And there was kind of no in-between, and we still have that wiring. You can feel it compulsively pushing you to bow down to leaders. You know, you think of the idea that we worship celebrities. Like, why? Because they're good actors? Why don't we worship good plumbers? You know? It's because we put them in the leadership position. They walk into the room, you actually feel intimidated by them, and yet they're just another piece of meat on a skeleton, just like you. Half of them are in rehab. They're no stronger or more capable than any of us. And yet we feel this impulsive, instinctual desire to worship them, to bow down, to show our neck to them should they wish to bite us, you know? So we've got societal pressure on top of an evolutionary biological drive for community order, yeah? Then we've got the way this is described in the media, which is really interesting. Whether it's movies or fake news, I don't even know if there's real news anymore. Whatever it is, what we see is this constant theme of enemies. This versus this. That versus that. Him versus her. Her versus the other her. And the idea that these enemies lead to pain and suffering. War. Lawsuits. Fights. This idea that if you someone dislikes you, they will become a cause of pain in your life. This, this message is very clear, isn't it? And this, is, this happened well before the currently established media. You think how long different religious groups have been feuding with each other. This constant belief system idea that if someone believes something else, not only is that wrong, but it's wrong in a harmful way. There is literal and made-up evidence that if someone believes differently to you, they'll harm you. And if particularly if someone sees you as believing different to them, they'll harm you. 
This idea that whoever's in the outgroup is also an enemy. So we've got this massive pressure to believe all this stuff, don't we? And the thing is, most of the subconscious, we don't really sit there thinking, oh, you know, this is like the time this outgroup really harmed this other outgroup. We don't think about that. We just think, whoa, this is different, and now I'm in danger, you know? I need to start acting differently to manage this situation. I can't have a disagreement here. I can't have a conflict here. I can't let this person hate me. You know, for, for any of you who have stayed awake late at night going, God, why does that guy hate me so much? Without going, why do I care? Then you know what I'm talking about. I used to spend fucking weeks sleepless if I managed to let someone, you know, get through my net of approval and actually not like me. I would go to town on that person until I turned them around. I'd do everything I could to impress and please and pleasure them in order to turn them around. And I was good at it too. I could do it. There was very few people in my history who will say that they hated me. And what's ironic is the ones who, the few that do, were the ones who could see what, that I was a fraud. They could see that I was performing, which we'll come to in a minute. So what does this look like? How do you know you're doing this stuff? Because a lot of people don't consider themselves to be people pleasers. And yet if I'm to observe them all day long, I'll see a lot of behavior that lacks integrity. And that's, that's the theme here. Anytime you stop being you in the presence of someone else to avoid negativity on their part, then we're talking about people pleasing. If there's a difference between the way you act at home with the people you feel safest with versus how you act outside of the home with people that you don't trust or don't feel safe with, then you're probably people-pleasing. We all do it. And to some level, it must be helpful. For any of you who have seen the movie uh, The Invention of Lying with Ricky Gervais, I think that paints a fairly accurate world of what would happen if people didn't moderate themselves at all. And it's pretty harmful in terms of just how nasty people are to each other. But I don't believe that that's an accurate perception of what it's like to be honest with each other all the time, and I'll come to that in a minute. But that's often what we think of, isn't it? We think even if you're not really a people pleaser, you're fairly socially confident, you know what you believe in, you're okay with people not liking you, you still will adjust in society, won't you? You'll take what was really true and you'll just put a little bit of sugar on it just to make sure nobody hates your guts enough to harm you. But what does this look like in real life? What does this look like in the non-extreme, more subtle forms? The first one is politeness. And what I mean by politeness is any manners that you bring to a situation that you wouldn't with your bestest friend. Okay, And I'm going to use the best friend concept as a great uh, reference point here. How you are with your best friend, if you're lucky enough to have one, the person you're most authentic with, the person you feel the safest with, the person you're least needy about trying to keep in your life, because you feel just so sure they're going to remain there. However you are with that person, that is your reference point for how you're different with others. Because who, however you are with that person is probably as about as socially authentic as you can be at this time in your life. So for some of you, that's still going to be pretty fake, but that's okay. It's a good reference point to get started. But... If you're different with this person than you are with others, then we're seeing this people-pleasing, trying to avoid hatred behavior. Yeah, Politeness. That's a huge one that's often different between how you are with everyone and how you are with your best friend. You can hear it in the way somebody even answers the phone. If it's their best friend, they're just like, what's up, loser? 
And if it's somebody else, they're like, oh, hi. And then the pitch goes up like, hey, how are you? Oh, false interest in your weekend. Oh, that's great. Now I'm going to pretend to agree with you. You know, there's this kind of difference that comes over people. You know, it makes me cringe when I hear guys talking to a girl that they've just started dating. You know, I'm like, why Why did you just talk like a girl? Like, what, what just happened to your voice? What the hell's going on there? So let them see who you really are, you know. But politeness goes so much further than this. If you say please when you don't usually say please, if you pretend to like a present that you've received because you believe it's the right thing to do, all these little things that you've been told are being polite are almost always false behaviours to avoid disapproval, aren't they? When we get down to the core of it. Now, notice I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being polite. I'm simply saying it's fake. I want you to let go of right and wrong here because that's going to really fuck up your ability to be authentic. I mean, one of the biggest challenges to being authentic is trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Authenticity has no right or wrong. It's just doing what is true to you. There's no right or wrong attached to that. So anything that you're doing because you believe it's the right thing to do in the certain context that you're in is probably politeness. Now there's times where there's nothing wrong with this. For, for example, like I've a few times in my life I've been welcomed on to a Māori marae, which is a, like a, a formal place um, for, for, it's like a Māori meeting room, uh, meeting place. And if I'm going to go into there and if I just walk on just like, yo, what's up motherfuckers, how's it going? I'm going to really breach a lot of etiquette and protocol, and it's going to be a huge disrespect to their tradition. Now, I can go on there and I can follow the traditions without being fake. I can do it because I actually want to do it. I can do it because I'm interested to learn about their culture. And if I wasn't, if I wasn't prepared to go through that, then it would be authentic for me to not enter the marae at all. Because if I'm not prepared to, you know, go with the protocols of the, of the other person's place, then I probably shouldn't be there. So politeness, in that sense, there's nothing harmful about that and you can maintain your integrity. What I'm talking about is the everyday stuff you do and you're not even really sure why you do it except you think it's the right thing to do. When you ask your workmate about his weekend, even though you don't give a shit about his weekend. When you say please and thank you, even though you don't feel particularly grateful. These are all examples of you just doing something because you've told it's right. Another huge one is white lies. So disapproval often comes from disagreement. We, we often tie the two together. So what people pleasers generally do is they try to seek agreement as often as possible. They try to end conflicts. They try to end confrontations. They try to make get, get everybody to a source of agreement. They really feel uncomfortable when any situation leaves with two people not agreeing. And this is where white lies come in. This is like when you're in a taxi... And the taxi driver just starts going off on a rant about something and you totally disagree with him. And your mind just starts going, well, you know, I've just got to get home. I don't need to be having an argument with the taxi driver right now. You've got to pick your battles, blah, blah, blah. And you tell yourself that because of the context, you don't have to be honest. And you just kind of let it go. That's an example of a white lie. You know, when your partner goes, hey, do I look fat in this dress? And your mind goes, wow, you can see the fat really spilling out of that dress. But you go, no, you look beautiful, honey. That's a white lie. You are lying to the person you love in that moment. And your brain will tell you it's the right thing to do because you've been raised to believe it is. So white lies are a huge one. Anything where you try to get agreement, any, any form of false agreement, any time you pretend to agree or you do not actively disagree about something you feel strongly, 
that's a lie. And that's something designed to avoid disapproval, to avoid disharmony to the social norms. Any kind of group conformity that you do, do you dress the same as the group you're supposed to be in? You know, like, I play in a metal band, and it slays me when I go to metal gigs and everyone's dressed the same. All these people who, (laughs) that's so ironic, they get together on the concept that they don't conform. Like, that's the banner that they hold up high. And they do that by all looking the same and believing the same and acting the same and listening to the same music. It's quite ironic. And I'm, I'm, I'm really not judging them. I used to wear a lot of black and chains and stuff myself to try and look like a little rebel. But this idea where you do something where you sacrifice what feels right for you, what feels true to you, in order to do what the group agrees with. Whether it's the way you dress and manage your appearance, whether it's the way you talk, I walked past a guy yesterday, he was, I was in uh, Tauranga, and I walked past a guy, and he's just like the whitest white guy you've ever seen, you know, and he was hanging out with all these Māori boys, and the way he was talking, it's just like, yeah bro, hard out, yeah cuzzy, yeah, he was talking like that, and I'm like, I could see the effort he was putting in to try and match, you know, their dialect, and I just, I just thought, this isn't... This isn't you. This is you trying to fit in with the buoys, you know? And you can see this stuff all the time. You'll notice that the way you talk changes with each different person you have around you. You'll be more sort of formal, perhaps, with your parents. You'll be more colloquial with the rough guy down at the the truck stop. You know, you'll adjust to try and suit. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but it's just a sign that you're trying to keep the social harmony going. You'll selectively reveal truths about yourself. And this is where a lot of people-pleasers try to get around the concept of being a liar. They tell themselves they're truthful because they do talk about truthful things. Where they're untruthful is the selective nature of this. They will avoid talking about any truth that they think will lead to disapproval. So they'll just talk about their strengths, they'll talk about the positives, they'll talk about the pleasure in their life. They won't talk about the pain and the suffering and the failure and the confusion and the fear and the anxiety and the depression and all the other shit that we all have all the time. So this kind of selective expression of truth, it often comes with a story. It's not the right time to say this. It's inappropriate in this situation. If I say that, it'll upset them. I don't want to offend them. All this kind of storytelling, whenever that comes up before you speak, you know you're in people-pleasing mode. Yeah? Notice that all of these things I've talked about are the things that do not happen around your best friend. There's no politeness around the best friend, is it? You know, I saw a great picture cartoon once. Show someone with their good friend saying, Oh, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And then it said someone with their best friend, and they just walk straight into their house like, Hey, loser, I'm going to eat out of your fridge right now. You know, they just blasted in and just lived the way they would if they didn't have all that pressure to, like, be nice. White lies. You don't tell your best friend white lies. You don't hide all the stuff that you think is going to hurt their feelings. You just let them have it. And they let you have it. Neither of you takes it personally. That's if you're lucky enough to have that kind of best friend. There's no false agreement with your best friend. You can actively disagree. In fact, you'll have hilarious arguments over minor points of difference without any fear that it's going to affect the friendship. You know? You can dress differently. You know, one of my best friends is a mechanic. And... We're into almost none of the same stuff. He's all about practical tradesman type stuff. He loves engines and building stuff and using his hands. 
and I'm like a nerd, right? I like reading and watching movies and talking about psychology and stuff. The only thing we see eye to eye on is a sense of sick humor. But we don't try to match each other. He doesn't try to be more academic. I don't try to be more practical. We're quite open about our weaknesses in either of those areas. And we don't feel any need to conform to each other. You know, we're just two different people who get along well. And impression management. You don't dress up to go to your best friend's house, do you? You just chuck on your, your most comfortable dax. And you just eat like a pig. And you don't do your hair or your makeup or any of that sort of stuff. You don't change the way you talk to make them like you more. If anything, the two of you will have developed your own form of language that's probably the most truthful to each of you. So I just want you to sort of bear in mind, take a moment, notice how often you engage in this behavior. And I'd set you as a first practical step here, as over the course of next week, carry a little notebook with you. And just note down every time you behave differently with someone than you do with your best friend. Not that this is right or wrong to do, just note when it happens. Now once you start exploring why did it happen, why did you hold back the dirty joke when your boss walked in the room, you know? Why did you pretend to be interested in the girl's job when really you wanted to talk about how attracted to her you were, you know? Why did you keep your mouth shut when that guy down at the pub just started talking shit about your football team? You know, why is it that you hold back being truthful? And start thinking about this concept of were you unwilling to let someone hate you? Is that what's really going on here? Now we talked about being unwilling to let someone hate you, and at this point you might be wondering, well, why not? What's wrong with not wanting people to hate me? Isn't that a pretty functioning thing to do in a global society of 7 billion people where we all need to try and get along and a world war could wipe us all out? Isn't it best that we don't hate each other, you might ask? And I'd like to challenge this assumption. Because it was challenged to me once, and it was life-changing, the experience. When I was challenged, the very core concept of someone hating me being a bad thing, when that was challenged, that belief, when someone hating me leading to pain as a belief was challenged, my whole life turned around. I got to enjoy life so much more. So let's have a look at how this affects us, behaving in this people-pleasing way and avoiding hatred. What's the real outcome of this? The first one, and I think the most important one, is the loss of self. What I, what I find when I talk to a lot of nice guy people-pleasers is they don't even know who they are. Their attempts to be themselves... Have, have, you know, to the kind of just be yourself type bullshit. They can't even attempt to do that because they wouldn't even know what that is. After decades often of people-pleasing behavior, more often than integrity behavior, they've actually lost track of even their own likes and dislikes. They don't even know what they are anymore. This is what happens when you moderate yourself. And for those of you who think, well, oh, I only do it a little bit. Well, every time you do it, you lose who you are. Think of the cumulative effect of doing that for weeks, months, years, in total over the course of your life. There's very few people that get to their deathbed and say, God, I wish I'd just pleased more people. What, what happens, if you look into the research of like nurses and stuff who work in hospices and talk to people on their deathbed, what you do get is common regret is not being more real. 
Nobody ever regrets being honest in the long, long term, I think. So let's have a look. Loss of value understanding is what I'm talking about here. What you value, the thing you knew when you were a kid, that basic, call it right and wrong if you wish, that you had sorted out when you were a young child. Yes, I like that toy. No, you shouldn't push kids. I don't like bullying. I do like maths. That stuff you had when you were a kid, you've lost that. You've lost that basic value-driven behavior. When you're a kid, unless you've had a kind of particularly neglectful first five years, you have a really clear understanding of kind of your own version of right and wrong. You're just, you're, you're straight on to it. I remember as a kid saying, I'll never smoke a cigarette, being so sure of myself, so willing to stand up for a stance. By the time I was 13, I was smoking like a pack a day. It was ridiculous. So you lose your values. And the, way, the reason I think you lose your values is because you're repeatedly trying to make dishonesty true. You keep pretending to be something, or pretending to think something, or pretending to feel something, and your brain can't handle a constant pretense. The easiest thing the brain can do is to make the pretense true, to make the lie true. So some people, like for me, I used to pretend to be unaffected emotionally. I felt that was a safe thing to do. So I pretended to like not care about anything, to not be offended or upset or disgusted or saddened or afraid. And what my brain actually made this true, my brain made it impossible for me to really experience emotion. I blocked emotion. And so I got to the point where I couldn't even experience anything. I couldn't get excited, I couldn't get happy. I was like a psychopath, just this dull, bland thing in the middle. No lows and no highs. My brain actually sought to make it true. So now I can't even have real emotional responses to issues. How the fuck am I supposed to figure out what I stand for if I can't feel anything? And this is a common complaint I get with my clients. They've been spent so long pretending to feel something or pretending to think something that they've lost track of what they actually stand for. And when you lose track of who you are, when you lose track of your values, you have no reference point for right and wrong anymore. And so you have to look beyond yourself. And this is where approval-seeking happens. This is where validation-seeking behavior starts to happen. You go, I don't know what right and wrong is. Let's see what Jeff thinks. Let's see what Sally thinks. Oh, she thinks that? Maybe that's what it should be then. Oh, this celebrity believes that this is the way forward, you know? Who's that fucking idiot? Um, Jenny McCarthy? Oh, vaccinations are wrong? Well, I guess I better go with that then. You know, this idea that if you don't know what's right and wrong for yourself, if you don't have your own sense of values, you're going to start basing that on other people. And this is where it gets really difficult, because everyone else is different. They're all different from each other. You'll be following one person with confidence, and then suddenly you meet someone you admire, and they're different. How are you supposed to integrate these two different ideas now, of what a value is? So when you lose confidence, you don't trust yourself anymore to make a call over the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. And so you start to seek it in others. You know, I know I'm contradicting myself from earlier before I said something about, you know, letting go of right and wrong. What I'm talking about here really is, is values. What is truthful to you? When I say right, I mean truthful. What is the thing you really feel like doing, you really believe in doing, versus the thing that you're doing out of neediness, fear of loss, you know, phobias of abandonment. And the cycle re repeats. The more you need somebody else to validate, the more you'll need it. It's like smoking a cigarette makes you want to smoke more cigarettes. If you, go, if you don't know what you stand for, 
and you follow someone else, then that will actually strengthen the belief that you need to follow someone else, which will, again, just weaken the trust you have in yourself until you become a complete sheep. You can see this in people who go from phase to phase, you know, whether it's being an atheist or a vegan or a something-ism, and you just switch from group to group. You don't. You need to feel like you have to belong to something to believe in it, rather than just going, you know what, I believe in science and I'm just going to follow that. I don't need to be part of the atheist group to do that. I'm just going to follow science and they can do their own thing. Or I don't want to eat products that harm animals. So I'm just not going to do that. I don't need to call myself a vegan. I'm just not going to do that particular behavior. That was That's what trusting your values would end up. But if you're like, fuck, I need to belong to something. Hey, those people sort of agree with what I sort of agree with. That'll do. And I'll just follow all their rules blindly. I mean, this is the foundation of religion, isn't it? If you belong by following the rules. This leads to a very painful cycle when it comes to connecting with people. This is where connection gets all fucked up. Because you can't trust yourself, you just can't trust. It's as simple as that. Anything you do inwards goes outwards. If you judge other people, you judge yourself. If you judge yourself, you judge other people. If you distrust others, you won't trust yourself. Because when you distrust somebody else, you're just saying you can't trust yourself to handle their unexpected behavior. If you can't trust someone until you feel safe... And you can't feel safe until you trust someone, then how the fuck are you going to connect with anyone? If you constantly feel distrust, then you'll never feel safe. If you never feel safe, then you'll never feel trust. It's a loop from hell that we get ourselves into with this people-pleasing behavior. I could never trust that someone actually liked me because I was never being me with someone. But I couldn't trust myself enough to be me with someone, so I could never get to the point where I felt safe with someone. Now, this is where I learned a very powerful lesson. My best friend, since I've had since I was like 13, he was an exception to all of this. So while I was people-pleasing and fake and so on and so forth with everyone else, with this guy I wasn't. I was just my worst self with him. All my worst humor. I could throw out a joke and not worry about it being funny or not. You know, I could tell him about my failures and misfortunes, and we're still like this to this day, you know, like 20 years on. We're still the only ones we talk to about the worst shit about ourselves, you know? And I always had the assumption that the reason I was like that with him is because I felt safe with him, because I trusted him. It never occurred to me, well, it did occur to me, but not for decades, that I realized that the reason I felt safe with him is because I'd been open and honest with him. That's what created the safety. Rather than waiting for the safety to be honest, I was being honest to create the safety. Being honest made me trust myself, which allowed me to open up to trusting other people. And I want you to look at your situation right now. So many people tell me that they can't be fully raw and open and honest with people until they trust them. Until they feel safe around them. And yet, how the fuck are you supposed to feel safe around someone if you've never tested being honest with them? If you've never allowed them the chance to let you down? You're stuck in a loop you can't get out of. And many people live in this loop. So what really happens if you start living in a different way? What really happens if you start being more you, letting your dislikes out, letting your disagreements out, letting your dark side show, all that stuff that you feel that you have to hide? What happens? Now what your brain will tell you is that this is going to be met with loneliness, unhappiness, 
and even violence. That you revealing who you really are is going to lead you to instant pain, long-term suffering. That you'll lose your job, that you'll have no friends, that people will beat you up, that you'll appear on the news and be ashamed in some way. The funny thing is, when I really dig into this people, they can't even come up with specific things they're afraid of happening. They're just afraid of being hated, but they don't actually have a follow-on from why they're afraid of it. But you feel like vaguely that these painful things will happen. Now I've put this to the test, and many of my clients have put this to the test. Many, many of my clients put this to the test. Many of the Brojo community put this to the test. And what we've found is that there's a surprising outcome. What really happens is that there's a brief period of painful polarization where all your current relationships are redefined by you being more honest and they either love you or they leave you. You polarize people into love and hate when you're being truthful. But what's interesting is what happens with the people who hate you is that they don't actually stick around to harm you. They leave. Because when you're really boldly honest, you're also very confident. So the bullies and stuff have no real interest in pursuing or targeting that. There's no satisfaction in an easy victim, uh, in a difficult victim. So what happens is, like right now, I know that there are scores of people out there who strongly dislike me at the very least. I see hints of it here and there, especially in online where people feel safer to express themselves. I get a bit of hate mail, I get some nasty reviews on some of my stuff, and so on. I know they're out there. But apart from this vague online cowardly stuff that I get, these indirect attacks, there's really nothing physically measurable in my life to let me know that there's people who hate me. They simply aren't in my life. I polarize them away. They don't want to be near me. They don't like what I have to say. They don't want to touch me. They don't want to see me. And so I don't have to be bothered by them. It's really quite nice. Sometimes I can see hints of it. Like if I go to dance events, there's people who want to dance with me and there's people who don't. There's these kind of hints. There's people who will get into conversations with me and there's people who will cross the other side of the room. There's these vague hints of the people that maybe they don't like me. But it really doesn't actually affect me in any measurable way. I'm not harmed by it. Now a lot of us have memories of harm, don't we? being bullied, say even being beaten up in school, and so on and so forth. We have memories of painful experiences associated with hate. But I believe that we've associated them with the wrong thing. We think that these things occurred because we're honest, and people hated us. When in reality they occurred because we are weak victims who invited bullying. Now, this is a hard thing to say, because I'm not blaming a victim for being bullied. The bully's the asshole. Make no mistake about that. Nobody's a victim of a crime and responsible for the crime at the same time. But I do know that there were kids at school who were different. They didn't conform and they stood out and yet everybody left them alone. Why? Because they were strong in themselves. The real reason we get bullied and picked on and ostracized and abandoned is because of the weakness we have around ourselves. When someone really believes in themselves, when they're willing to be hated for what they believe in, they usually get left alone. Of course, there are exceptions. What really happens when you start being more open and honest is you'll find your tribe. You'll create a big space by clearing out the weeds in your social garden. All the people who are there just because you've been performing for them, they'll leave and they'll create a space. And that space will be filled with people who are drawn naturally 
and attractively magnetized by your honesty. The people who like you for being you. Now your belief system will really struggle with this. If you've got low self-worth, your belief will be like, how could anyone like me? Because you've been punishing yourself with dishonesty for so long. You've been telling yourself that you're not good enough for so long that it's you struggle to believe that anyone else could feel that way. But they can. And there's a kind of matter of faith that you need to go through here. You need to understand that you're not really building a relationship where they like you. You're trying to build a relationship where you like you. Now, you spend a long time being dishonest. Every time you fake and hide your truth, you stop liking you a little bit more. If you go out there and start being more powerfully honest, you'll repair that relationship. You'll become shameless. And then other people will be able to like you more. And by the time they do, you won't give a fuck because you'll have a connection with yourself. You'll know what your values are. You know what you stand for. You'll believe in you. You'll be your own best mate. And when that happens, you'll be so non-needy around other people liking you, that they'll like you. It's as simple as that. The funny thing is, when you engage in people-pleasing, the reverse happens. So when you engage in people-pleasing, you think you'll end up with everyone liking you, and that you'll be happy, and that you'll avoid all this pain. What actually ends up with, is that you're disconnected from everyone, because you've been fake all the time, and you have no real connections, and you feel lonely and sore all the time. So all that pain that you've been trying to avoid, is actually created by people-pleasing. And you know it if you're listening to this. You know that all the self-loathing you have comes from you not standing up for you. It's got nothing to do with other people. Let's move on to the how-to, the practical. How do you polarize through vulnerable honesty without ending up losing everything? Well, ironically, you need to be prepared to lose everything. Really. I made a commitment to the death. I made a commitment to my integrity that I'll die first. A great inspiration for this is the movie Braveheart with uh, good old anti-Semite Mel Gibson. Braveheart is all about the value of freedom. Right at the end, tortured to the death, he's still screaming for freedom. You know, that was a bit of a spoiler alert, I guess. Um... But that movie's it just really represented to me, like, am I willing to die for me? Um, am I willing to let the whole world turn on me in order to stand up for me? And I decided, yes, I am. I don't know what that means yet, but I'm willing to do it. And I started on that journey. And that's ultimately what built my confidence. That, that's the number one thing, where I started to look out for me first. Not selfishness, just pride and respect. And I did that through being honest. And when I mean being vulnerably honest, I mean showing the thing that you think you need to hide. The thing that this context, this social situation is telling you not to reveal. Revealing that thing is the secret here. At any given moment, you can stop and ask yourself, what don't I want people to know about me right now? What am I hiding right now? What am I trying to work past and not show? And then just show that thing. It's really that simple. It couldn't be simpler. That thing will often be confusion. Like showing that you don't know or that you don't understand. Desire, showing that you want something and being direct about it. Disagreement, showing that you stand for something other than what the group conforms with. Anger, pain, suffering. All of the stuff that shows that you're not a happy, healthy human being 100% of the time. Showing people that stuff is a secret to connection. Like I've said so many times, you can connect with someone on pleasure. You can be like, oh, we both agree on this thing, or oh, we both like that thing. And that's okay. 
but nothing connects you like sharing pain. You'll never see connection more than you'll see at a Narcotics Anonymous group, where all people talk about is their deepest pain. You'll just see deep compassion and connection. And that's among drug addicts. I challenge you to go out there a little bit more each day and show the thing you don't think you're supposed to show. When someone asks you, how was your weekend? Tell them. Don't say it was fine. Tell them that you had a fight with your girlfriend and that you got up too late on Sunday and that you had some good times and then you had some bad times. Tell them how you feel. Tell them that you don't want to talk right now. Tell them all the stuff you don't want them to know and just watch what happens. Another thing you need to do is you have to figure out what you actually like and dislike. You'll have lost track of it by now. And you can do this by simply writing lists. You can follow, like, this is where journaling at the beginning become really helpful. Like, at the end of each day, write down all the things that stood out to you in your memory and ask yourself whether you liked them or hated them. Should I say loved them or hated them? Polarize them in your own mind. Decide, was this a good thing or a bad thing by my own judgment? Start to learn what you like and what you dislike so that you know what to express when it comes up. Make a commitment to allow everyone who's toxic to your integrity to be weeded out through being honest. All the stuff we're talking about revealing, if someone's a bad fit for you, they'll be pushed away by this stuff. And your job is simply to let that happen. You'll see this if you're working in an office and you go around telling everybody about what really happened on the weekend... There'll be 10 people who don't want to talk to you again. There'll be two who want to take you out to lunch. Those are the two to focus on, and the other 10 can go fuck themselves. It's as simple as that. There's a shame grid exercise. For those of you who have got my book, Nothing to Lose, I think I refer to in that, but um, if you guys are interested, you can email me, dan at brojo.co.nz, for the shame grid exercise, where you figure out everything you're ashamed of, and you start revealing it one small manageable piece at a time until you become shameless. That's a great one for this. And last one as a practical gift I'll give you is spend time with the people you naturally and spontaneously desire to see rather than those you feel you have to see or that you feel you can't live without, the needy ones. Every day ask yourself, who do I genuinely want to see right now? Who, who, would, who would be enhanced by my presence and I'd be enhanced by theirs? Rather than who do I have to see, what do I have to maintain? And start weeding people out just through who you actually want to see and avoiding those you don't. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now because I've been ranting for a while. But look, overall, the summary here is that you can polarize people with honesty and that's how you find confidence in the social sphere. That's how you prove to yourself that you're good enough without the approval of others. Often this is referred to as to not care what other people think. I do care what people think, I just don't care what their judgment of me is. And that's because I've already created my own self-measurement system. I don't need their support anymore. And you can do the same. So I hope this helps. Make sure you let me know if there's anything, uh, any stories you want to share or if there's any questions you have about this. And of course if you want coaching to make sure that by the end of the next year, you really don't give a fuck what people think of you, then get in touch, dan at brojo.co.nz, and I'll see you next time for Brojo Online. Cheers. <laughs>